Countrywide on ABC Radio. Support businesses are going to go to the wall just like dairy farmers will. We've seen the whole agricultural community come out. Once people leave communities, they don't. They generally don't return. Countrywide. Don't worry about me. Go and speak to your farmers. We're already losing businesses. Get out there and speak to your farmers today. and jump on Countrywide, the politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hello there, Jane McNaughton here with you today on Countrywide. I'm looking forward to spending the next half an hour with you. Coming up on the show today, economists now expect the Aussie farm sector will produce $73 billion of produce this financial year. So are we on track to hit the industry's target of $100 billion by 2030? A group of researchers in New Zealand and Germany have toilet-trained cows, and it turns out it could be beneficial for farmers' land. And did you know that about 70% of the ham and bacon on supermarket shelves is actually made using imported pork? All that and more on today's edition of Countrywide. You're listening to Countrywide, across Australia and around the world on ABC Radio. Australian farming has never been worth so much. Economists at the Australian Bureau of Agricultural and Resource Economics and Sciences, otherwise known as ABARES, now expect the Aussie farm sector will produce $73 billion of produce this financial year. ABARES spokesman Jared Greenville says that would be a jump of 8% on the $66 billion of value the industry produced last year. Well, we've had a, a couple of good things really come together at the same time. So... The first is, of course, for for Australian agriculture, the weather. Um, We've had some pretty good seasonal conditions and uh, a really good turnaround in what we were expecting seasonal conditions to be earlier in the year um, with that negative Indian Ocean dipole heading around and and leading to what will be one of the biggest winter crops we've had, another new record winter crops. Um, And that's been combined at the same time with some some pretty strong global prices across the board, across grain, sugar and cotton, and that's really being driven by some pretty poor seasonal conditions elsewhere in the world, particularly in North America, which is really forcing some of the, the prices up for, for our grain um, exports. Um, we're also starting to see some dividends from what has been some herd rebuilding in the national you know, cattle herd and, and sheep flock. And so there's more product, more, more meat coming onto market as a result of that. So the livestock sector is having a good time of it. The grain skies are going well. But dairy too is benefiting, I guess, from China's uh, inability to, or, or the high prices for feed for domestic production in China. Yeah, there's been a combination of both higher prices for feed, higher costs really for Chinese milk producers in terms of feed, but also a big push to for more consumption of milk products in China. Um, so Chinese dairy producers are producing more milk, but largely for the drinking milk market, which has led to processes really looking to the international market to get hold of, you know, manufactured milk um, to go into a number of manufacturing processes. And that's really helped up our prices at home here as we're selling more of that into China. The forecast today from ABARES also expects record farm gate returns in the horticulture sector. What's driving that? So with horticulture, it's again the seasonal condition story, um, but also we've had some fairly, I guess, continued price rises as a result of really the labour shortages that are affecting the sector. So while prices are up, there are some issues with trying to get all that product off farms and, and into consumers' hands. 
And so we would normally expect a, a season like this for prices to start to fall, but we've had a, a continued pattern of, of price growth, which we wouldn't have otherwise seen. And that's starting to then weigh on total gross value of production. But a lot of that will go through into increased cost for farmers. Okay, and if we have a look at the labour issues, it's not just the horticulture sector. The report today makes mention of the wool industry as well as cotton growers. And, of course, we've heard a lot about the grain harvest, um, the forecast shortage of workers there. What impacts that really having uh, on this bottom line? Yeah, so there's a number of watch points with those industries in terms of getting hold of, of people to, to I guess, get the crops and production out of fields and, and into silos and into markets. Um, at the moment, we're, we're expecting really that it's unlikely to have a big impact on national production, although there could be some localised issues. Where it will come down to is, is again, cost um, with, you know, producers either having to, you know, bid up the price of, of labour trying to get people to come and work. But also there's, you know, opportunities which don't come, you know, free to delay harvests in, in some ways is trying to get hold of, you know, that labour as it comes available off other farms. So that's where we're expecting to see the main kind of impacts coming through. Jared Greenville is the Executive Director of ABARES and he was speaking there with Kath Sullivan. This ABARES prediction lifts agriculture closer to the National Farmers Federation goal of getting the industry to $100 billion worth of value by 2030. President of the NFF, Fiona Simpson, says it's a goal that she's confident the industry will reach. We all have absolutely everything crossed at the moment because things have still got to go right for us to get to, to the first of all, to that 73. Um, and then most certainly there's still, you know, lots and lots for us to achieve when you look at the roadmap of, of the things that we've got to achieve to get to the to the magic 100. But I think it's a, a really great shot in the arm this year. We seem to have so many things going for us that, you know, it's challenging some sometimes to get lined up together. So we've got, we've had great seasons over, you know, really large parts of Australia. Some still doing it a little bit tough, but, but large parts of Australia climatically doing it well. We've got great, you know, great commodity prices over most of our commodities. In fact, phenomenal crop commodity prices in some cases. And we seem to be getting on top of some of the, the trade challenges and things that we've had. And we're just getting stronger and stronger and stronger can't believe I'm going to say this, but do you worry that things are almost too good with price, season and everything lining up and yet you're still not quite to the $100 billion yet? We always knew, and I mean the $100 billion is is the headline number, okay? That's the thing that got everybody into the roadmap. That's our, that's our, our shining light. But of course... The many things underneath that are the things that are really, really going to make our industry hum. This is your goal, though, the $100 billion by 2030. You got the government yeah. on board. They've taken it on as, as their goal. Does this year and the growth in agriculture, you know, last prediction, ABS had it at $66 billion. Now it's at 73 That's a significant jump. Does it give you an insight on, on some of the things that need to happen for you to reach your goal? Yeah, it certainly does. And I think some of that, it's worth pointing out too that, you know, as a grain farmer myself, I've got a, a wonderful crop in the paddock at the moment, but there's a lot to happen before it gets into the silo and before it actually gets to the end consumers. The $73 is not banked yet. There's a bit to happen, but the $100 billion 
yes, it has a whole lot of things, challenges in there as well, things we've got to get on top of in the, the five pillars that we've got around sustainability and people and capital. And governments, in their commitment to the $100 billion, it's been really exciting for us as, a, as an advocacy body who has to work really for a very long time on some of these issues to actually get some, some really big steps forward in the space. If I asked you to tell us your chances of getting to 100 billion by 2030 is it 50 50 70 30 where do you put it oh look i'm a glass half full kind of girl so i i go we're definitely going to get there and i reckon we're going to get past that but having said that we always said that we're not going to get there just by doing what we've always done you know australian farmers are incredibly innovative that really underpins the 73 billion dollars that we're you know looking for looking at this year it's not just good luck it's also good management and we're definitely going to get there fiona simpson president of the national farmers federation speaking to warwick long from the top end to tassie countrywide on abc radio Australian farming families can diversify their incomes, increase productivity and profit from strong climate policy, according to a new report from economic consultants Ernst & Young. The report, commissioned by Farmers for Climate Action, lays out some of the ways Australian farming families can benefit from environmentally sustainable practices and contribute to significant emission cuts this decade. The CEO, Fiona Davis, says a lot of farmers are already becoming more sustainable, both for economic and environmental reasons, but the government needs to invest to scale it up. This report, which we've commissioned EY to draft, lays out the opportunities that good climate policy creates for farming families. EY have modelled an easily achievable pathway to zero emissions without shrinking Australian agriculture, nor our cattle or sheep herd, and it lands us on the year 2040. So it ultimately finds that Australian farming families can diversify their incomes, increase productivity and profit from strong climate policy, while also supporting Australia to make deep emission cuts this decade. So 2040 is obviously 10 years earlier than the proposed 2050 net zero aims. Why do you think that agriculture can do that so much more quickly than other parts of the economy? Agriculture's been doing a lot of work towards this already. We saw the National Farmers Federation members support a climate policy with that net zero goal of 2050 last year, but the red meat industry's had a 2030 goal for some time. We've also got Australian pork set a 2025 target. So farmers are placed so well to be part of this solution, and a lot of the solutions for agriculture are actually just good farming practice. So we're building carbon in soils and plants and restoring degraded land and planting carbon biodiversity pilots in marginal land or non-productive land. It makes so much sense for diversifying income that the start of this process has already begun and it just needs that encouragement to take it that next step further. What does Australian agriculture and Australian farmers need to scale up what's already happening? Basically, we need support from the federal government to really get behind the strategies that are featured here. We need support for the carbon and biodiversity pilot which is being rolled out, we need to see that scaled up at a national level and any barriers that prevent farmers being involved being taken away. And that'll allow farmers to make that decision for themselves about what works for them. But we know already that this shapes up incredibly well. We've got investments going into solutions to reduce methane emissions and we need to step that up to get us there by this 2040 date. But we can actually, if with enough ambition, we can get there even sooner. 
but we also broadly need the federal government to lead a more ambitious transition for our energy and transport sectors because that's where our big emissions lie and that's where those real cuts can be made. And through that work, we can actually change Australia's emissions trajectory. We can contribute to slowing climate change. And for agriculture, that sets us up to be able to farm successfully and profitably into the future and continue to provide Australians and the world with the food and fibre that we do today. So speaking of investment, the National Party have been criticised by farmers for wanting to exclude agriculture from any future net zero targets. Instead of talking about excluding agriculture, should the government be making this investment? Absolutely. I'm not sure if you noticed when that discussion hit the media earlier this year, it was agricultural industries that stood up and said that we want to be part of this. So I think they really set the record straight there that the value of agriculture The value that uh, emissions reductions presents to agriculture is incredible and we want to be part of it. So research by ABES shows that climate change is already costing the average Australian farming family $30,000 a year. Do you think a lot of farming families are aware of that? I think a lot of farming families are aware of that. Farming families that have, in the three years that I've been with Farmers for Climate Action, we've had our farmers buffeted by extreme weather events that will have impacted bottom line. So we started out with a drought in August 2018. We've had the black summer bushfires. We've had floods, cyclones. All of these events make it harder and harder for farmers to farm profitably. One thing that has been discussed quite a lot in regards to Australia's targets or that lack thereof from what the international community is seeing from us, what foreign market access opportunities would Australian agriculture gain if it was more environmentally sustainable? So there's enormous market benefits for Australia having really backing up this clean and green image and committing to a net zero goal. We've got as well as individual farms marketing their produce. This is going to be a growing focus for markets here and abroad. We've got international markets now looking at basically tariffs for countries that aren't doing their bit. And that might not impact on agriculture today, but it's inevitable that that is going to shift what markets we can access and how. And so it's so important for the future of our industry that we're on the front foot. So... Climate change is a scientific problem. Why has it now become a political problem? It's become a political problem. I think we're actually moving past it being a political problem, but we have had a history of it being a political problem because it has been positioned as an issue of the left. And actually what's becoming clearer and clearer that this is an issue that needs to cut across all sides of politics and that for a conservative audience, This is an issue that does need to be worried about. This is having immediate economic impacts right now and it fundamentally shapes how we think about the future. So we're we're seeing that shift as we move past the divisiveness that we've had in the past. Farmers for Climate Action CEO Fiona Davis speaking there with me earlier this week. The Federal National Party has been contacted for comment And on the release of this report, Farmers for Climate Action hosted a forum, which all of the state and federal agriculture ministers were invited to attend. None did. But the leader of the Victorian Nationals, Peter Walsh, did show up, and this is some of what he had to say. 
what I see happening now with big corporates and agriculture is the biggest corporate in Australia if you put it together collectively. We actually haven't got a federal government framework or a state government, coordinated state government framework to actually make decisions in. So a lot of people are making you know, millions, billions of dollars worth of decisions without a really clear framework to work. And that's where I'd like to see our, our politicians, actually, including myself, actually be part of providing that framework for people. My view is that as leaders, as, as political leaders, we are there to uh, help with the debate, set the framework, empower industries, empower people to get on with whatever has to be done within that framework. Whereas uh, without putting words in Barnaby's mouth, I think you could say that he has said, come and show me what it costs agriculture before I'll talk about it. I just don't think that's the way to drive the, drive the debate forward. As I've said to him, as the Deputy Prime Minister, you are in a, a very opportune spot to actually help agriculture to drive this debate forward and make sure there is a framework that doesn't disadvantage people, but actually delivers the right outcome. That was the leader of the Victorian National Party, Peter Walsh, distancing himself from his federal counterparts. Countrywide, the voice of regional Australia on ABC Radio. And Jane McNaughton here with you for today's program. Do you know where the bacon in your shopping trolley comes from? Almost half of all Australians have purchased bacon in the last week or so, but according to new research, most customers don't know where it comes from, despite growing consumer sentiment to shop local. Australian Pork Limited CEO Margot Andre said consumers were unaware that most bacon and other small goods are made from imported meat. We asked people what their awareness was around the raw ingredients of ham and bacon. So a lot of people may not know that about 70% of the ham and bacon on the shelves is actually made using imported pork. There's only about 30% of it is actually utilising Australian homegrown pork and supporting meals in pork producers. So it was interesting to see the awareness levels that they actually just assumed that it was Australian. It was a staggering number. So as we said, 76%. And they just didn't realise. When they found out these facts, what was their reaction? They were quite disappointed that they hadn't realised. So I guess we've seen a strong increase of people wanting to support Australia, homegrown, a lot of people wanting to buy Australian, especially buy local. So the fact that they thought they were buying local and they weren't, I think they were just generally feeling disappointed. And 85% of them actually said that if they'd realised they just needed to pay a little bit more to buy Australian, that they would certainly do that. We are seeing that change of people wanting to buy local, wanting to become aware of where those ingredients are coming from. And I guess that's our approach is helping people read the country of origin labelling. Most people believe when they see the green triangle with the yellow kangaroo that they're buying Australian, but we really need to read the bar chart underneath. And some of these products, you really need to be you know, over 90% to confirm that you are buying Australian ingredients. So tell you that there should maybe be uh, an additional certification involved, whether that's from APL or another body, just to make it easier for consumers? We've done a lot of work on this once we realised the confusion around, around the labelling and we've been working very closely with government to raise awareness. But first and foremost, we wanted to understand what the confusion was and, as we said, this survey clearly demonstrated that people just didn't realise that the bar chart on that label meant so much. So we focused on awareness first. Do people want to know? Do they know 
where those ingredients are coming from. What does that look like? But you're right, probably our next step is to work with government on what other options do we have to make sure there is truth in labelling. Compared to what's available that is Australian made, how much of the pork and ham and bacon products in Australia are imported from overseas? So if we think about fresh pork, 100% of fresh pork is Australian. So as I often say, if it's got a bone, it's one of our own. So you can be guaranteed the fresh pork you are buying, so your roasts and your chops and your fabulous loins and things like that, that is all Australian. And to be even more certain, you can look for the pink square, the pork mark, the Australian pork mark. But when you come to your small goods, so your ham, your bacon, some of your prosciuttos and things like that, people might be surprised to know that 70% of that product does use imported pork. So to give a bit of an insight into that, that's about 3.35 million kilos coming into Australia on average every week. So which translates to about $13.8 million of imported pork coming in every week. So it's, it's quite a large amount. Considering that Australia exports about 70% of our overall agricultural produce, why are we importing so much pork? This is um, interesting. So we, we aren't a huge exporter of pork. We only export about 10% of our production does actually get exported. So And they're to mostly to Singapore and Hong Kong, a little bit in Vietnam and a little bit into Japan. So we're not a huge exporter. Most of our production is grown for Australian consumption. That does make a difference. But in terms of actually imported, so we've seen um, a reliance on that imported pork probably over the last decades, originally because of price. But if you put it in the context of how Australia operates, we do have very high standards around our food safety, around biosecurity, animal welfare, and even salaries for workers. So it has traditionally been that Australian-based ingredients are a little bit more expensive by the time they're processed. What we're seeing now, though, with African swine fever around the globe, and I'm very pleased to say Australia is African swine fever free, what we've actually seen is a massive change to the pork protein globally with about 30% gone due to that terrible, terrible virus. So we're seeing the price slightly change, but we're also really seeing consumer sentiment change. And Australians do want to support Australians. They do want to buy locally. And here's the opportunity... People say that they like to shop locally and that they want to support Australian farmers, but how many people are actually going out of their way to make sure that they're doing that? So we've seen over the last 18 months that consumption of pork has gone up, so around fresh pork. To put in the context, about a year and a half ago, we are sitting about 10 kilos per person per capita, and we're probably sitting around 10.8 kilos per person per capita at the moment. So we are actually seeing that people are, their buying behaviours do demonstrate their wish to buy Australian. So we're currently seeing that come through. We're currently seeing a trend that they are actually putting their money into the Australian markets, which is great. Hopefully that sentiment continues. According to our survey, 50% of Australians have purchased bacon in the last week. But what we need to do now is to work out how much they are buying locally. Australian Pork Limited CEO Margot Andre speaking there. Countrywide, the voice of regional Australia on ABC Radio. Have you ever had to toilet train a toddler? I've heard it's pretty hard yakka, but could you imagine trying to toilet train your livestock? 
Well, a group of researchers in New Zealand and Germany have done just that. Toilet-trained cows. And it turns out it could actually be beneficial for farmland. Lindsay Matthews is a researcher with the University of Auckland. He spoke more about the research with Amelia Bernasconi, who started by asking the question we're all wondering, why toilet-trained cattle? Well, because they, unfortunately, um, you know, there's a big we problem. <laughs> the, um, you know, they, they do um, two or three litres of urine at a time and it gushes into a small area in the, on the soil and the plants can't handle it, the soil can't handle it. And that leads to a couple of major issues. Um, one is the excess nitrates run through the soil and into waterways, which is not good for for the health of the water or for the people that drink it. And the other is that it gets converted into nitrous oxide, which is a, you know, 300 times more potent a global warming agent than carbon dioxide. So if, uh, and, and cattle um, uh, all around the world are doing heaps of uh, peas all, every day. And so if we can um, capture some of that and uh, utilize it, better, then we can have an impact on you know, climate change and, and water quality. So how did you bribe the cattle to um, weigh in the same spot then? Yeah, well, <laughs> I wouldn't call it a bribe. It's more of a. Oh, sorry. I've heard that's how you potty train toddlers <laughs> with bribes. <laughs> well, so um, there was really just two, two simple steps. And we used um, a procedure that a lot of people use with toddlers. And that is that you associate the um, the place where they need to go. You know, you might have a potty in the bathroom. So here we have a a, a pen with that's clearly identified, nice green pen, green floor, and everything. And we rewarded them every time they urinated in there. And then um, after that, we put them outside the pen and and looked to see if they would go into the toilet to to urinate. And and they did. Sometimes I made a mistake outside, as you do. <laughs> and uh, so we would give them a little uh, spray of cold water, a couple of seconds, and um, <laughs> it was amazing. You could just see the look of their faces. Oops, I made a mistake, and they, and, you know inhibited and then they trundled down to the to the toilet pushed open the door and went in and, and started again did, sorry did you say pushed open a door yeah yeah <laughs> so there was a one you know yeah yeah we, oh so know, the, the cattle the are toilet. backing themselves into that and, and um going for a bit of privacy as well yes <laughs> yep so it's a one-way door in so you know they they went in and then there was another door to come out but uh yeah just it was just so that we could be sure that they were you know doing uh, going there to go to the toilet they didn't wouldn't just wander down there any old time i have to ask how long did it take to train the cows well that's the that's the really astounding thing um so in that little first phase i've talked about you know you put them in the in the in the in the toilet room uh that was most of the animals learned that connection as the right place to to go to the loo and five or ten urinations you know not days not months wow. uh, five or ten and then um, we put them outside, and that then we rewarded them for for another ten or twenty urinations, and then they um, they had that as well to go into the ur- the, the toilet to urinate. So around about twenty twenty five urinations all up, and um, you know most of the animals were going in there most of the time. I mean, Lindsay, we are having a bit of a laugh about this, but you you touched on the environmental benefits that this research. What sort of benefits could it pose for primary producers if they're getting their cattle to um, use the potty? Well, 
you know, one one thing is that, you know, because cattle are uh, vilified a lot for, you know, the methane and the nitrous oxide and the nitrates, so they're vilified. So this this has the potential to turn around, you know, how people see see the animals, that they can, can be animal-friendly. If we actually ask them to help us, they can help, you know, solve the problem. And um, so, but more than that, if you can capture the urine, I mean, it's a, you know, the problem, the reason it's a problem is because it's very nutrient rich and it's just too rich. So there's heaps of nutrients in there that can be utilized and, um, and put back in the, you know, onto pastures or whatever in a, in a more dilute sort of controlled way. So it doesn't get this problem of the excess runoff. University of Auckland researcher Lindsay Matthews speaking there with Amelia Bernasconi. Incredible stuff. But that's all we've got time for on the program today. If you're keen for more, you can head online to abc.net.au forward slash rural, including more information about what's going into the ham and bacon products on supermarket shelves. I'll catch you next week.